Joshua 21, verses 1 through 45, uh, the majority of the verses are filled with unpronounceable names. Uh, so in the interest of uh, unpronounceability, uh, I'm just going to read a couple of the verses at the beginning and the end to set our context. Hey, if these towns were named Hanford and Armona and Stratford and Riverdale especially... I'd, I'd go through it, but uh, I can't. Uh, I can't. Pre- Sometimes people come and say, "Man, you do really good at that pronunciation," and it's all phonetic because I don't have any idea how that stuff is really pronounced, you know. And then somebody will come up and say, "It's not Hebron; it's Hebron," you know, and stuff. So, doing the best I can here. Uh, Joshua twenty-one. The topic: the Levites were born to represent God, and you are born again to do the same. The title of our message today: You've got Levite genes. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 21. Then the heads of the father's houses of the Levites came near to Eleazar the priest, to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the children of Israel. And they spoke to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, saying, The Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to dwell in with their common lands for our livestock. So the children of Israel gave to the Levites from their inheritance at the commandment of the Lord, these cities and their common lands. Now, skip with me down to verse 41, please. All these cities of the Levites within the possession of the children of Israel were 48 cities with their common lands. And every one of these cities had its common land surrounding it. And thus were all these cities. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give their fathers And they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word and for your Holy Spirit who indwells us. We pray that that combination would reveal rich insights to us, insights for living in the 21st century, that as we consider the role of the Levites in the various cities they were uh, placed in, we would understand how this applies to us today, how it draws us closer to you, how it shows us your love and grace and mercy at work in our lives so that others can see that as well. Lord, we live in dangerous and difficult times, spiritually speaking. But we need not fear because perfect love casts out fear. And we know that you love us perfectly and you are perfecting our love for you. And so I pray that we would find our refuge and our strength in you. And that far from wanting to retreat or get depressed or despondent, we'd be excited about these interesting times in which we live times in which people need answers and times in which, Lord, we have the solution. That solution is a person. It's Jesus Christ risen from the dead, poised and ready to return to this earth, ready to forgive sins and to grant eternal life. I pray, Lord, we would focus on the simplicity and power of what we know to be true. We thank you and praise you. And everyone said, Amen. You've probably never heard of the documentary titled Starbucking. 
Its tagline is, The True Story of One Man's Highly Caffeinated Journey, which I'm going to adopt as my blog name and uh, kind of the story of my life. It follows the travels of a guy who is on a quest to visit every Starbucks in the world. I guess there's a lot of scenery, you know, in some of these uh, off-the-freeway places. The one thing you've got to love about Starbucks is you can always find one. You're never very far from one of their stores. In ancient Israel, the thing you were never very far from was a Levite. No Israelite was more than about 10 miles from the nearest city in which a Levite lived. The Levites were the ones who had the task of teaching the people about the Lord. Anyone who had a biblical question or concern or who needed godly counsel could have their spiritual needs met by one of the more than 23,000 Levites dispersed throughout the promised land in 48 designated cities. In a similar way, I'd say that no non-believer, thinking of our immediate area, is ever very far from the nearest Christian. God has dispersed believers in such a way that anyone who has a biblical question or concern or who needs godly counsel can have their spiritual needs met by one of us, or by another Christian dispersed throughout the various neighborhoods, workplaces, and schools where we find ourselves. There's an odd expression you may have heard, and it goes like this. Wherever you go, there you are. Sounds kind of zen, but I think I understand it. And I'd like to hijack it for Jesus. Wherever you go as a Christian is someplace you've been sent by God, and there you are to represent Him to those around you. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, wherever you go, that's where God has sent you. And number two, wherever you are, that's where you represent God. First of all, in the first 42 verses, wherever you go, that's where God has sent you. A little bit of a review is helpful. Under Joshua's leadership, the Israelites had entered the promised land and subdued all their enemies. After each tribe received their portion of land by the casting of lots, two special types of cities were designated throughout the land. The first were the cities of refuge. We learned in chapter 20 that six cities were dedicated, three of them on each side of the Jordan River, as cities to which a person could flee for safety if they were guilty of manslaughter. There their case would be heard, and if the slaying was found to be unpremeditated, They would be sentenced to live in the city of refuge until the death of the current high priest, but their life would be spared. Now, the second type of cities to be designated were those in which the Levites would live. Some 48 cities were chosen by lot, and they're scattered all throughout the promised land. Levi was one of the original 12 sons of Jacob. The tribe that descended from Levi has an interesting story. Back in the book of Genesis, Levi and his brother Simeon concocted a plan to murder all the men in an entire city because one of them had defiled their sister, Dinah. Their father ultimately cursed them both, saying, and I quote, I will divide them and scatter them in Israel. Some years later, during the Exodus, the tribe of Levi distinguished itself. When Moses came down from receiving the Ten Commandments, the Israelites were worshiping the golden calf. Moses asked, who is on the Lord's side? And the Levites were the ones who responded and rallied to the Lord. 
Moses assigned them the task of going through the camp and slaying the idolaters. By the way, it's interesting, just as a, a, an aside, a lot of times God will call upon you to serve him and, and he won't exactly tell you what you're going to be up to. He won't exactly spell things out. Out in the workaday world, uh, even in our classrooms, we, we, we always have some kind of a job description or an outline, and we kind of know where we are, where we're headed, what's expected of us. Uh, and a lot of times we bring that over into our relationship with the Lord, and we wait and we wait and we wait for God to give us a, a proper job description or to tell us exactly what he's going to do. And, and it becomes a waiting game because God is also waiting. He's waiting for our heart to just say, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. Who is with me? As Moses said, who is on the Lord's side? And the Levite said, well, we are. And then Moses says, okay, you're going to go through the camp and start killing your brothers. Oh, if I had known that, I might not have been so quick to volunteer. Uh, and, and there's a lot of things. If I look back in my Christian life, if I had known some things, I probably wouldn't have volunteered. However, knowing all that I know... I see God's hand in it, and, and I'm glad that the Lord led. And so a lot of times, you just need to be willing and available. And when you ask for a job description, uh, God's already given you one. He gave it to you in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who left heaven and came all the way down, not just to earth, but on the ground before the feet of his disciples, washing them, the job of the lowest servant. Uh, and, and when we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, I'm on your side. I'm willing. Then he'll begin to use us in new and exciting ways. Now, on account of their zeal, Moses blessed the Levites to become the spiritual leaders in Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 10, you can read, They shall teach Jacob your judgments and Israel your law. While they must still be scattered throughout the land, the curse was turned into a blessing on account of their zeal to serve the Lord. The whole land would be open to them to live in certain designated cities and to be able to better influence the spiritual life of the nation. There were three lines of descent from Levi's three sons, whose names were Kohath, Gershon, and Merari. And by the way, uh, those of you who are always looking for good, solid biblical names for your children, uh, I haven't run into a Kohath, Gershon, or Merari yet. And, uh, well, you know, we, we do like to pick biblical names, or a lot of people do. Uh, funny thing about that is we always all pick the same biblical name. There's only a handful of biblical names we're excited about. No one likes Mephibosheth. Uh, Judas is off the table. Uh, Kohath, Gershon, and Merari are wide open territory. Uh, and I can bet you that uh, they always will be. And so if you want to have if you want to be unique, uh, Gershon, uh, Gershon Pensiero, that's got a ring to it, of course. <laughs> the line was further divided because one of Kohath's four sons, Amram. That's got power to it. Sounds like something in the Mopar circuit, doesn't it? <laughs> hey, what do you got under there? A Hemi? No, an Amram. <laughs> <laughs> Amram was the father of Moses and Aaron. Aaron and all his male descendants were appointed priests, Exodus 28. Thus, all priests were from the tribe of Levi, but not all Levites 
were priests. Those who were not priests descended directly from Aaron, served their brothers in the more menial but still essential work of the tabernacle. All of them were Israel's teachers. Now, the first 40 verses of the chapter show how the 48 cities were designated. The Kohathites, who were direct descendants of Aaron, were dispersed in 13 cities. The Kohathites, who were not descended directly from Aaron, were dispersed in 10 cities. The Gershonites were dispersed in 13 cities, and the Merarites were dispersed in 12 cities. I might mention, too, in passing that the six cities of refuge were also cities that were designated to the Levites. So there weren't uh, 48 Levitical cities uh, and then six more cities of refuge, but the six cities of refuge were included in the cities that were given to the Levites so that if you were in a city of refuge, if you had to flee there and live there, uh, you were with uh, Levites who could continue to instruct you uh, in the Lord. Now, there's one very, very simple application I want to draw from the way the cities were designated, and it's something that I've already mentioned. No Israelite was ever very far from a Levite. No non-believer is ever very far from a Christian. Just thinking in terms of our own local communities. I, mean, I understand that there are places on the planet where the gospel has not reached uh, as we would like it to. But looking at ourselves this morning, no non-believer in Kings County is very far from a Christian. The Lord wants us to think of ourselves as being dispersed into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, into our schools in a sovereign way that puts us near to those who are in spiritual need, whether they know it or not. Now, I think we know this, but we often forget its impact. There's a sense in which where I live and what I do for a living is secondary to the fact that I am sent there by God. You know, we get wrapped up in our uh, jobs or our careers or the things that we do all of the time. We, we have a tendency to get lost in them, whether we excel at them or not. We, we just get all, uh, you know, uh, lost in them. And we need to have constant reminders in the word of God that, hey, yes, you have to make a living and you can excel at it and it can be a career and you can, it can be even a distinguished career. But the primary reason that God has a Christian out in the workplace or at a particular school or in a particular neighborhood is to be scattered into that place to uh, be sent there to represent him. Even though I seem to have chosen my living and my livelihood, God always remains sovereign and has put me exactly where he wants me. Maybe another perspective on this will help. We're familiar with what is called the Great Commission. It's when Jesus told his original disciples and us through them, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. It's interesting to me, since we're in this kind of Jewish context of the book of Joshua, looking at the Levites, Remembering that all of the original disciples that Jesus was talking to were Jewish. When, Je when Jesus told them, I am sending you out throughout Israel and the whole world to be the teachers and the disciplers of everyone you encounter. 
the Jews would have understood that they were kind of taking the place of the Levites, that this was Jesus now saying under the new covenant, everybody is going to be like a Levite. Every believer is going to be scattered out into a place where they have the responsibility to share and teach and disciple and, and spread the gospel. And so there's always these great typologies, these great connections uh, in the scripture. Now, this command to go, we normally think of it in the sense of those who make it their vocation to go. Missionaries who leave everything to go to another country or a culture are the poster boys and girls for this word go. And that's a that's valid. But the real sense of this word is as you are going. It's a word that can be translated to walk or to live or to conduct yourselves. And so Jesus is saying something like as you're walking and living in the world, conduct yourselves in a way that makes disciples of all the nations, etc., etc. And read that way, it applies to all believers, not just vocational missionaries. As you and I, and I would call us, you know, in respect to the political campaign, Joe and Josephine, the Christians, are going through life. We are to conduct ourselves as those who have been dispersed by God to reveal him to others and to deal with their spiritual needs. Unless you are in sin or somehow doing a Jonah, he has you right where he wants you. And it's in the midst of folks who, whether they know it or not, have incredible needs that only Jesus can meet and satisfy. Which brings us to our second point. Wherever you are, that's where you represent God. In verses 43, 4, and 5. The Levites were born into the position of representing God. You and I are born again into the same position. If you were born a Levite, that's, that's who you were. I mean, you, you were a Levite. You know, if you were a direct descendant of Aaron, you were a priest. If you were a descendant of one of the other sons, you were a Levite. You served the Lord in the temple. It wasn't up to you. And, and I, I see this in the sense of us being born again. The Holy Spirit gives us the gifts that he wants us to have. He makes us, in a sense, the spiritual people that he wants us to be and then sends us out into the world. And uh, rather than fight what God is doing, uh, you know, it's, it's always easier to go along with that and to accept our spiritual pedigree as given to us by the Lord. And so we're out representing God. And so the question is, what is it we should represent about God? That's an important question. For the most part, I'd say that people have a bad impression of Christians and of what it means to be a Christian. I don't know if that's, I don't know that we need to figure out whose fault that is. Certainly Christians can be to blame. We can be to blame. The media can be to blame. That's not important. But what is important is that it translates into people having the wrong impression of what God the Father is like. Those of us who know God want them to see our Heavenly Father in His grace and mercy and love and compassion. We want to properly represent the Lord. The last three verses of chapter 21 can help us answer the question, what is it we should represent about God? I'll read them again to you. Verse 43, so the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word failed 
of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel, all of it came to pass. Now, of course, these verses in context summarize and bring to a conclusion everything we've read thus far in Joshua. God had kept his promises to his chosen people. Their land was under their control. Though there were still pockets of resistance, God would give them continued victory as long as they walked in obedience with him. Each of these verses also speaks to us in terms of how we are to represent God to those around us. And the things that I'm going to share are just kind of seed thoughts. They're not exhaustive. They give a perspective on how we are to represent God uh, rather than a list necessarily. And so in verse 43, I think the thing that we learn there is that God did for the Israelites exactly what he said he would do. He had the power to deliver them from their enemies, and he was faithful to give them victory. We are therefore to represent God as both powerful and faithful. God is powerful. I think the most powerful thing that God does is to forgive sin. I love that episode with Jesus when he's teaching in the house, and there's so many people crowded there that they can't get this paralytic in. His friends are carrying him on his bed. And not to be deterred, they climb on the roof of this house and they start removing the roof. And uh, it, it, it's a mind-blowing scene, really. If you've ever had a roof put on, I mean, I know the roofs there are different, but uh, a lot of stuff falls when you're taking the roof off. And I mean, this is, you know, Jesus is teaching and all of a sudden, a little bit of dust, then a lot more dust, then, then there's an airway, somebody's peeking his head through, a little bit wider, and then on ropes, they're laying, letting this bed down in front of Jesus. And obviously, it's a, an interruption. The ushers didn't know what to do. Uh, and so they just let it happen. If you've been around Jesus for any length of time, you never really knew what to do. You know, there are a lot of times when they thought he was being interrupted and he said, would you guys mellow out? Uh, you know, and so they just kind of flowing with it. And then here's this fantastic event. This guy seeking a healing, his friends with zeal and, and compassion laid him down in front of Jesus, not taking no for an answer. And Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven. Wow, what a letdown it seems, right? And then after they question him, he says, oh, oh, well, if you want to know that I have power to forgive sins, which I think the footnote there is, which is the more important issue. And he told him to rise up and take up his bed and walk, and he did. And so when we talk about the power of God, what we're really talking about essentially is the power to forgive sin because sin is the real issue. The root of all of the difficulties that we have, all of the problems in this world, internally, externally, it's sin. And God is powerful and he can forgive sins based on the work of Jesus on the cross. You can be born again and receive the Holy Spirit indwelling you. What a mind-blowing concept that is. Not that you can discover God within you, but that God comes and lives within you. And then you're empowered to walk in a manner that is pleasing to God in ways that you could never do on your own by yielding yourself to right behavior rather than being a slave to sin. And then God is faithful. Though we continue to sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. He cleanses us and gives us as many second chances as we need. 
He has promised to make us like Jesus, and he'll continue to work in us until he accomplishes that. He'll never leave us or forsake us, and he will bring us home to heaven and to the place that he is preparing for us. This is how we are to represent God as powerful and faithful and able to save to the uttermost. There is no one you know, no matter how bad they are, no matter how horrible their life might be, that God cannot save to the uttermost, that God cannot forgive their sins based on the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, and grant them, gift gift them eternal life. We have certain designated. We look at people and think, that guy's never going to get saved. Or I'm afraid. I think sometimes we're afraid to even bring up Jesus to people because they're in such pain and such suffering that you think, well, if I can't heal them, then how can I help them? And we need to get past all of that. And remember, the essential needs of a person are deeply spiritual. Yes, they're suffering. Yes, there's terrible things happening to them, but not nearly as bad as dying and facing a Christless eternity. Jesus is really always the answer to what people are going through. God is powerful and faithful and thus able to save to the uttermost. Isn't that a great thought? To go go forward in life knowing that our God, our Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost, that there's no case that's too difficult for him that will leave him scratching his head. A key word from verse 43 is gave. The Lord gave what he had sworn to give. It reminds me of John 3:16 where we learn that God as promised from the beginning gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. The key word in verse 44 as we move forward is rest. God gave the Israelites rest. It was an active rest in that they continued to drive out their enemies. But they did so from a position of assured victory. Too often, God is represented as giving us work rather than rest. Too often, we are hammered by exhortations. We are not doing enough for God that he is somehow disappointed with us. Too often, we are the recipients of condemnation when the Bible clearly heralds that there is now no more condemnation to those who are in the Lord. You know, Jesus told the parable of the prodigal. And uh, I like to focus on the father in that parable because even though the son did everything he could to disown his father and to diss his father and to disrespect his father, you find in that parable that every day his father was looking for him to return. And he saw him afar off. You, You can only see a person from afar off if you're looking for them. And seeing him afar off, he got all excited and he ran to meet him and he kissed him and he put a robe on him and he gave him all these presents and he threw a party for him. Not to excuse sin or or to blink at it and think that it's not significant, but God is looking to save. He's looking to restore. He's a loving Heavenly Father. And he's wanting to give us spiritual rest. There is a work to do. It's a spiritual work. But as you read the Bible, you find out that it's done in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in the energy of our flesh anyway. It is the person who understands just how much God has done for them who will work the hardest. And his work 
is a joy, not a burden. It doesn't seem like work at all because it is the work of a son or a daughter walking in fellowship with God. It's like a family business that you want to be involved with. It's like, hey, I want to be about my dad's business. His business is to save, and so I'm going to serve so that others can get saved. It's very exciting. Non-believers almost universally think that they must do something religious and difficult in order to approach God. We must represent God as extending grace through faith. Ours is never a religion of works. It's always a relationship of love. Then in verse 45, there's a strong statement about the word of God. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All of it came to pass. We have God's completed word, the Bible. It's authoritative and infallible and inerrant. It contains everything we need for godly living. It has the supernatural ability to get deep into the human heart, to divide between the soul and the spirit, and to speak to each person. If you were saved later in life, you, you remember what it was like when God divided between your soul and your spirit because there was a moment in your life when you understood you were a sinner. Now, I grew up in a religious tradition uh, that talked about sin, and I understood that there was sin and that people did wrong things and all of that. But I never understood that I was a sinner until one day in 1979, the Lord, through His Word that was working on my heart, in a moment, in a flash of insight, God spoke to my heart and He said, this is who you are. You are a black-hearted sinner. And I was terrified. There's a famous sermon. I've never read it because I don't want to read it. But because uh, it's famous. It's John Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I don't like the title. But I did feel that way that day. Only not in the hands of an angry God, in the hands of a gracious God. Because the Lord, I mean, I can't describe it to you any more than to say that I understood in a flash of insight, I'm going to die and go to hell. And I deserve to go there. In fact, I agree with that decision because of who I am essentially in the very depth of my soul. And only the Word of God can do that. Only the Word of God can divide between the soul and the spirit and get right down where you live and show you what's really going on. And that's what's so powerful about it. So this then is how to represent God. God has given us his word that he will forgive us our sins and bring us safely to heaven as new creations. Along the way, he's going to empower us to defeat any and all spiritual enemies as we enter into the rest of yielding ourselves to his indwelling Holy Spirit. He's going to give us abundant life now and forever. That's the concept generally that we have to keep in mind and not be swayed in any other direction, to either uh, think that we need to supplement that with something else because it's not palatable to people anymore, uh, or that we need to take something away from it so as not to offend someone. I mean, we just need to be very basic about this tremendous good news. Everybody that you see that's not a Christian, they're a sinner in the hands of a gracious God. And, and they need that gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and it, one thing I wrote down here is that the gospel is the answer, and it doesn't matter what the question is. 
People have questions, they have concerns, they have sorrows, they have whatever. What ultimately matters is Jesus because he trumps all of those things. He overcomes all of those things. It's in a relationship with him that we're either healed from them all or they're all put into perspective. One of the most powerful things I've ever seen uh, years ago when uh, AIDS was first kind of coming on the scene and people were struggling with, you know, what is AIDS and where does it come from and all that. Uh, Harvest Christian Fellowship was on the cutting edge and they put together a little uh, 30-minute documentary on AIDS uh, and and, uh, they were talking to AIDS patients, guys that were dying of AIDS, and, of course, these guys had come to faith in Jesus Christ uh, through this tragedy in their lives. And, and one of the guys, it just really rang in my heart. I, I thought, man, this is, this is unbelievable. But in the sense of how, how fantastic it was, this guy, after you know, they interviewed him throughout, and he talked about his former life and everything. And then at the end, dying of AIDS, I mean, literally on his deathbed, uh, he said that he would rather have AIDS and know Jesus Christ than not have AIDS and not know Jesus Christ. And I thought, wow, that's it. That's, that's everything you need to know in a nutshell. Uh, you know, you're, you're in bad shape. You've, you're dying of AIDS. Back then they had, you know, it, it was even you know, worse than it is now because uh, of the, the ignorance and all that. And this guy, I mean, just with the faith that God had given him to say, yeah, I, I met Jesus Christ. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die and go to heaven. In fact, I'm kind of excited about dying. And, and it's, that's really what we're talking about. Now, every now and then, someone has this idea to build an entirely Christian city or town. The latest one that I'm aware of is a place called Ava Maria. It's near Naples, Florida. It's the dream of Tom Monahan. You'll remember him as the founder of Domino's Pizza. He wanted to build a town in which Roman Catholic teachings are strictly enforced. As an aside, uh, the article I was reading uh, called him the Pizza Pope. But uh, I, just ha- I just thought you'd get a laugh out of that. But anyway, very sincere guy, uh, you know, and, and uh, he's wanting to build a Catholic city where people can experience, you know, live there and and be subject to Roman Catholic doctrine and dogma. Now, that's one approach to living. Gather all the believers together in one place that will be a safe haven for them. But I think the Lord would rather scatter us throughout all the cities and towns making disciples. So we're abandoning our efforts to make Riverdale an entirely Christian town. I'm just kidding. We're going to continue to try that. But anyway, uh, I, and, and I, not that I think the Lord would rather. I know he would because that's what he said. He says, go out into the world. And, and you know, ultimately, this, this is the bottom line. The more disciples that are made, the more every town, every neighborhood, every workplace, every school site, and our entire country will be influenced and affected for good and for godliness. You should vote. And you should vote your biblically trained conscience. And we don't get into a lot of specifics because I trust that you are intelligent enough to know how you ought to vote as a born-again Christian. 
uh, and we should all exercise that right and kind of, you know, chastise us a little bit if we're not voting because God has given us this great country and we should support it and uplift it and be involved in it. Having said all that, the, the way this nation will change is through revival. When more people are Christians, the issues that we're struggling with will dissipate because more people will know the right from the wrong. And uh, so what should we concentrate on the most? Where should we put most of our energy? In being scattered into our workplace, our school, our neighborhood, properly representing Jesus Christ to people who are dying and going to hell. Not because of what they believe, but because of who they don't believe. They don't believe in Jesus Christ. And so, yes, we get into issues, that's great, but we're about a person and a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And once a person, think of your own life. Again, if you were saved later in life, I use myself as an, I always do. I was a drunk, I was uh, addicted to drugs. Uh, that wasn't the issue. The issue was I didn't know Jesus. And when I came to know him, I didn't have those problems anymore. Because he has a grace and a power and a mercy to change a person's life from within, both now and forever. And we need to hold on to that basic fundamental truth and not be swayed to the left or to the right. Ours is the message of change. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these things. We want to be changed to bring change to our world, eternal change, spiritual change. Use us, Lord. Encourage us. Strengthen us. May we be excited to go back into our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools, wherever we find ourselves, just waiting, Lord, for you to open up a door so that we could share with someone. Just living, Lord, a, a quiet, peaceful, born-again life, saying yes to you and no to sin so that we're ready, Lord, when people who have needs come to us. We love you, Lord, so much. We thank you that you make it simple. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells us. We thank you for the Word of God, which we have to study and to understand. You're a good God and a glorious God. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. All right, Triple H tonight, 5 o'clock to 7.30. If you're going to enter one of the cooking contests, uh, be here between 4.45 and 5. Uh, right at the entrance to the church, the main entrance, will be a table or so or two set up and you can come. We'll take a sample for the judges and then we'll put the rest of your stuff on the potluck table. It is a potluck. If you can, bring a main dish and a salad or a dessert so that there's plenty of uh, excess food for us to gluttonize ourselves. Uh, it is the one day a year when gluttony is not a sin. I, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but there is always a lot of really good food. And so uh, if you can't bring anything, we want you to come. Yeah, I know, you know, sometimes you, oh, I would have come, but I couldn't bring anything. We'd rather you come and mooch off of everybody else. No, I'm just, now you're not going to come, but no, please come. Uh, and, uh, you know, we want everybody there. It's a great night for kids. Uh, you know, parents are always struggling trying to raise your kids in a non-christian world and your kids you you end up oh, you're always saying no to your kids 
you know, they, they want to do this, that, and the other thing that worldly kids are doing, and you always have to say no. This is a night when you can say yes. We have tons of fun. Uh, the kids all, little kids out at the Midway, they all get free little prizes. Uh, the inflatables are a riot. Uh, it'll be a lot, a lot of fun. Award ceremony in here. Everybody gets prizes and such. It's fantastic. Pumpkin contest. Can't lose there because everybody gets a prize. Uh, make sure you write your name on your pumpkin so we know who you are when we do the judging and come up with our crazy character, uh, you know, categories. Uh, I look forward all year to the Triple H, and uh, it's just a lot of fun. So uh, the World Series, I think, is a bust so far. Uh, the games are good, but Tampa Bay and the Phillies? I mean, really, is there... Okay, uh, I don't want to hurt anybody that's from Philadelphia, but, I mean, TiVo, the game... Uh, I can follow it on my phone if you're really, you know, that interested in it, pitch by pitch. Uh, but uh, come on out. Have a good time. God bless you. May God bless you. In Jesus' name.